3: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7 a.m. and today is Tuesday, the 27th of September. My name is Fong, and joining me in the studio today is Genevieve. Good morning. Good
0: morning.
3: Um, how was your long, extra long weekend? Oh,
0: yeah. I worked the whole time. Oh, no. <laughs> um, the beauty of working in hospo is long weekends don't exist, especially when the long weekend is sprung on you so yeah. quickly, like the day of the morning was. Yeah, that um, was really unexpected. Just like I knew a lot of people that just went to work because – um, a week in advance is just not enough time no, to get yeah. <laughs> that stuff sorted. But, um, yeah, it was okay. I watched the game, which was very disappointing. Um,
3: do you go for uh, either of those? No, yeah. I
0: dislike both of the teams very much <laughs> for no good reason. Yeah. Just yeah. purely because, <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's always the way with the grand final. There's always such a huge margin in between the teams. And it's just boring. Like, everyone was just, like, not engaging. Like, I was at the pub. Yeah, everyone was, was just a, having their own conversations. It was a bit yeah.
3: of a weird vibe, wasn't it?
0: It was, yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, I think it got to about maybe Saturday where I was like, I have no idea what day it is.
0: Mm. <laughs> like, I know, yeah. It feels...
3: It feels like time has stopped or something.
0: Yeah. I think, um, cause I was just working at, uh, this cafe that I work at and, um, <laughs> I think especially for the owners, they were so just like, when is this weekend going to end? <laughs> they were <so laughs> like, all these people just wandering in. It's so busy. Like it feels like it's been a Saturday
3: for like four days. Four days. Yeah. Like yeah. everyone just go. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's so intense.
0: Yeah. Um, did you get up to anything?
3: Well, my parents were away, so we stayed at their house. It just felt like such a luxury to stay nice. in a house in a with house. a garden, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, which was really nice. And they have chickens in the back.
0: Oh, And cute. it was
3: really cute, just like yeah. letting them in and out every day. But there were a couple of magpies in the backyard and they were absolutely ruthless. Yeah. And it's that Season, isn't swooping it? season, yeah. Mm. So I was a bit worried for the chooks but they held their own. They were fine. They fought backs. So oh, they shooed really... them away. Sorry, what? What is the chicken going to do? I don't know. I think they <laughs> just kind of like ran at them. And... Anyone? Yeah, they just... they ran at the magpies and the magpies. Oh, away, I see. So, true, yeah, true, true. Yeah. So I was, I was like, oh gosh, am I going to have to intervene? Even though I, oh, I, was, no. I didn't want to get. Swooped. I feel
0: like a magpie <laughs> would really hurt a chicken.
3: Oh, I'm yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm glad that I didn't have to see any sort of showdown between That's the magpie good. and the chicken. <laughs>
0: you kept it at bay. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> um, okay, so today's show, we are starting with an excerpt from a talk that was given by Lynn Kelly and Margo Neal from their book, Design Songlines. Um, so that will be um really interesting discussion between the two of them. Um, they weave together deeply uh, personal storytelling with extensive research on mnemonics. Um, Songlines, The Power and Promise offers unique insights into Indigenous traditional knowledges. So that's coming up first. Um, and then we're going to be speaking to Dimity Hawkins. Uh, uh, Dimity
0: is the co-founder... Um, of, sorry, a researcher and advocate for abolishing nuclear weapons. Um, and yesterday was the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. So Dimity's on the show to talk about a webinar that's actually happening at 8.30am this morning, um, discussing the international day and specifically, uh, Australia's reluctance to sign a treaty, uh, to, um, abolish nuclear weapons.
3: Coming up after that, we'll be speaking with Anna Langford, who is, um, part of the Friend of the Earth's Act on Climate Collective, and, um, and is going to be on the show to talk to us about the, uh, newly released report, Climate Impacts at Work, which was published by RMIT University in collaboration with Friends of the Earth and six Victorian unions. So looking at, um, how workers are going to have to adapt to the climate crisis and the physical and mental health impacts um, on workers as well, which I guess is a a continuation of a discussion um, that we uh, were having last week with Ursula um, Alkia from Healthy Futures. After that, we'll be speaking with, Liz Walsh, um, Liz from Victorian Socialists is on the show again this morning to talk to us about, um, uh, an annual counter protest which is going to be held against this rally called March for the, for the babies. So, um, uh, Liz will be on the show to talk about, you know, um, why we need to fight against this, um, movement that is seeking to, restrict um, reproductive rights for everyone. And then coming up last, just before the end of the show, we'll be speaking to Sahar Golizadeh, who is going to be on the show to talk to us about the solidarity vigil for Masa Amini that's going to be held this Thursday at Federation Square. Uh, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this message. Mm-hmm.
0: A soulful reimagining of 1890s Melbourne. Presented by La Mama, Measure of a Moment explores the loving bond between a young bohemian writer and a troubled musician coming to terms with the changing world and the challenges of addiction and death. With comedy and light, an original score, and live acoustic music, the ensemble of eight actors urge you to take up a seat. Running from 28 September to October 2nd, go to lamama.com.au, a 3CR supporter.
3: Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. These are the news headlines for today, the 27th of September of 22. A lot's been happening, actually, in the last week. Um, there was a damning report that came out of Hawthorne Football Club, um, and just a warning that this story does contain um, uh, some mention of self-harm, pregnancy loss, and intergenerational trauma for First Nations people. So an external review was um, commissioned by the Hawthorne Football Club, um, revealed allegations that key figures at the AFL club demanded the separation of young First Nations players from their partners and um, even pressured one couple to terminate a pregnancy for the sake of the players' careers. The review document was handed to the senior management at Hawthorne almost three weeks ago now and um, is now with the AFL Integrity Unit. And it was believed that this review was similar to the one that was conducted by um, the Collingwood Football Club in 2021. Um, During this period of the review, there were 20 First Nations players in Hawthorne and three of the families involved um, told ABC Sport about incidents Um, That occurred during this time that involved um, bullying of First Nations players, bullying them to um, and removing them from their homes in order to relocate elsewhere and telling them that they had to choose between their careers and families. Um, And the report contained some really disturbing details about the manipulation that um, allegedly occurred between um, the – that was – yeah, that the players were manipulated um, into leaving their families and their partners and even terminating pregnancies. So really serious, really serious and disturbing allegations coming out of this report. Um, Eddie Betts, who is an extremely well-respected and legendary First Nations football um, player, has called for all AFL clubs to review their, their treatment of First Nations players after... Um, what has been revealed at Hawthorne, um, which is super important.
0: Mm, yeah, it really signifies, I mean, the AFL in general does not, uh, there's no sort of compassion for in uh, First Nations culture or community mm. and it is kind of very, like, career, forget about the family, which is obviously so, uh, family and culture is so entrenched in First Nations.
3: Yeah, and just <laughs> another institution that that um, where there's a lot of systemic, mm-hmm. systa- systematic racism mm-hmm. that occurs there. Um, we're turning now to Iran. Um, so Iranians have taken to the streets for a tenth consecutive night to protest against the murder of Massa Amini um, in defiance of a warning from the judiciary. Officially, at least 41 people have died since the protest began, and... Um, And, uh, but sources say that the real figure might even be higher. Uh, the Norway-based group Iran Human Rights said on Sunday evening that the death toll was at least 57, but they noted that, um, ongoing internet blackouts were making it really hard to confirm fatalities, um, yeah, in a context where the women-led protests have spread to scores of cities. Hundreds of demonstrators Activists and journalists have been arrested, um, amid the mostly nighttime demonstrations, um, since the, um, protests started after, um, 22-year-old, um, Masa Amini died in police custody on 16th of September. We'll be speaking about this and a vigil that will be held on Thursday here in Nam in solidarity, um, uh, with Masa Amini and the people of Iran. Um, at 8.15 later this morning. To other news, in a landmark decision, a UN committee on Friday found that Australia's former coalition government violated the human rights of Torres Strait Islanders by failing to adequately respond to the climate crisis. The Torres Strait Islanders group of eight claimed that Australia failed to take measures such as reducing greenhouse gas emissions and upgrading seawalls on the island. The UN held the complaint and said that the claimants should be compensated. This decision is a breakthrough in First Nations rights and climate justice, including um, opening up new pathways for Indigenous communities who are very often on the front line of the climate crisis in order to defend their rights. Um, the Albanese government, which has stated its commitment to work with the Torres Strait on climate change, must now meet with, um, must now meet this moment of possibility and challenge. So it would be interesting to see what happens next. It started in 2019 when eight Torres Strait Islanders and six of their children lodged the complaint with the UN, saying that climate change was damaging their way of life, culture and livelihoods. The evidence they used was backed by findings from the latest IPCC report, which called for urgent action to protect the vulnerable region. Um, climate Earth lawyer Sophie Marginak, who acted for the claimant, said the outcome set a number of precedents. Specifically, it's the first time an in- international tribunal has found that A, a country has violated human rights law through inadequate climate policy. B, a nation-state is is responsible for their greenhouse gas emissions under international human rights law. And C, people's right to culture is at risk from climate impacts. So that's a great win for um, the Torres Strait, and it'll be interesting to see what happens next. In other climate news, um, Tiwi Islanders have won a landmark case against drilling for gas by Santos in their traditional waters after complaining that the company failed to consult them about the impact of the re- of the project. On Wednesday, Judge Mordecai Bromberg set aside approval for the drilling part of Santos's $4.7 billion Barossa project and gave Santos two weeks to shut down and remove its rig from the sea north of Melville Island. He said that the offshore oil and gas regulator, Nopasema, failed to... Um, address, oh, sorry, failed to assess whether Santos had consulted with everyone affected by the drilling as required by law. Um, this case was brought by a senior lawman of the Munipi clan, Dennis Tipa Kalipa, the traditional owners of the Northern Tiwi Islands. Um, he told the court that, um, the traditional owners have sea country to which they have a spiritual connection to the north of the islands um, that extends into the Barossa project area. Um, uh, he said, I quote, we want Santos and all mining companies to remember we are powerful. We will fight for our land and sea country for our future generations, no matter how hard and how long. So um, a couple of great wins for um, indigenous communities there who are fighting for climate justice Uh, all right we'll be back with our first segment right after this message
4: 3TR
0: community radio 855 a.m.
3: First up this morning, we are going to play you an excerpt from a talk given by um, uh, Lynn Kelly and Margot Neal about their book, Design Songlines, weaving deeply personal storytelling with extensive research on mnemonics, Songlines, The Power and Promise offers unique insights into Indigenous traditional knowledges robust for over 60,000 years. The authors share understandings of how these vast stores of information were encoded through song, story, art, dance and ceremony rather than simply recorded in writing. Oh,
2: thank you very much um, um, for that. I, I'd like to acknowledge the Jaja Dja i also like to acknowledge... Um, all the other Aboriginal people through various historic circumstances who have found themselves on the Dja Dja Wurrung lands and to acknowledge my own people, the Gunai Kunai and Nakulan Nations and my Gumbanga people in the Northern Rivers and um, Wiradjuri um, in New South Wales. I'm currently standing on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples in, in the Canberra region. And so I would clearly like to acknowledge them as well. So um, I just cannot. Every time we do this acknowledgement of a country, I cannot tell you how it gladdens my heart because 20, 30 years, 20 years ago, even this would not happen, and if it happened, it would be a very rare event. And now, I mean, I go to stuff all the time, and it's it's. An absolute um, essential protocol, regardless of your political persuasion, uh, regardless of your interest in things, Aboriginal or not, it's now become such an institutionalised thing and it, that all goes very well for a lot of other things. Thank you. Lynn, could I start with you perhaps? Could you introduce yourself and talk a little about your work?
5: Um I'm Ben Kelly and I live in Castlemaine, so I'm a local. And uh, I did research into—I'm a science writer and an educator—and my research into Indigenous stories from a incredibly ignorant state uh, led me to the shocking realisation of how much is memorised when my natural memory is appalling. And I started asking. This is. 12 years ago when I started a PhD how the hell do they do it and of course the fundamental of the way it's done is through song lines and since then I've had a PhD in academic book and the memory code and memory craft published and now with Margot which is sort of most the hype for me because I'm a huge admirer I, I went to the Exhibition, which I hope she'll talk about. Not Margot, you'll talk about Seven Sisters Songlines Exhibition at Canberra, and was absolutely blown away by it, um, and realised I'd still only glimpsed. And now to be working with her is a privilege. Okay, could um, could I ask the same from you? But could you also talk a little bit about the series and and
2: what was the motivation to create this um, to, to begin publishing this series? Uh, who you are asking? I'm asking you. Oh, okay. <coughs> okay. Um, it's it's very interesting. It's one of those sort of things when the moons line up. I you know I got into the whole song lines thing, so I've been seven or eight years working on an exhibition, um, and um, and then and then I set up, I changed the name of my department in the National Museum of Australia from. God knows what it was, something like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs or something like that, straight into the Centre for Indigenous Knowledges. And somehow out of this ether arrives Sally Heath um, from Thames and Hudson who says, oh, we'd love to do, we want to do this first knowledge series. And, you know, in, I have to say, it I can't put a time on it, but I have to say... I haven't heard people refer to Indigenous material as knowledges for, you know, until the last few years, right? It's always myths, legends, you know. um, I don't know what was used, but the word knowledges has become as it should because that's what it's about. But anyway, Sally Heath, Thames & Hudson, they came up with this first knowledge series, which is absolutely extraordinary for the education market, consisting of six readers Now they may be readers the readers in a lovely kind of format that you have there but they're still 40 to fifty thousand words we just don't have lots and lots of color plates to um, so that now it is very accessible selling for always under you know twenty dollars and it's um, so I have to give credit to Thames and Hudson and to Sally here for coming up with it just so happens to totally dovetail into where, people like Lynn and myself and the National Museum, and we are ge- more generally in the Indigenous space. And the, oh, sorry, what I should say is the other one, this is songlines, and as it should be, the first one should be songlines because songlines are the foundational truths of this country for all of us, black or white, and it's it's our central premise for the creation of this country and everything that emanates from us, which we'll get into um, so it's absolutely prime that it's first and then it's followed by, uh, Indigenous knowledges in, um, things like land management with Bruce Pascoe, and Bill Gamage, then the, the second one actually is called design, which is called building on country. Everyone has a country focus and then the, um, you know, it's astrology and then it's medicine and then it's innovation. And so I on. astronomy a- please, Margot, not astrology. No astronomy. I always get that wrong. Thank you very much. Very much. Astronomy, that's why Lynn's very useful. She keeps me in line. Uh, <laughs> astronomy. I always say astrology. Anyway, so that's all the main point is there's at least six um uh you know, different average ab- indigenous practices that have been in for the purposes of the education market being given a subject heading, whereas an actual fact, as you will find when you read each of these, that they actually don't compartmentalise in the way it may appear. But we do have to address our audience. They do come through a Western, um, education system, but it will, it will totally expand, um, people's worldview and it will create a very, those who read through them all, as you will, if you've read some lines, uh, will give a very integrated concept um, of how one knows stuff and how one should learn stuff. Thanks, Robin. So I'm going to do, I'm going to back off because... Okay, all right. For the first um, half hour before the audience joins, I had the privilege of listening to, listening to oh, okay, okay. bounce off each other. Uh, so I, I hand the virtual floor to you both and uh, you know, I can enjoy. So all right. Oh, but don't, everyone should just, as Lynn just did, don't hesitate to pop in, whether I hear you or not, another question. Um, well, I'll, I'll kick off on, uh, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very, uh, Big topic and I could choose to start uh, with my background and how much or rather how little I knew about songlines in my growing up years. But probably before we go any further, I should actually explain the term songlines. Um, the term songlines is, is actually a cross-cultural word that was coined by Bruce Chatwin in 1987 when he did that rather famous book called Songlines and he's a British journalist who came to the, this country mostly through the centre, the deserts, the centre um, and he raced around and he talked to lots of people, he saw lots of things and he, he was grappling for a way of explaining the Aboriginal worldview. And interestingly enough he did know the importance of song and performance and how somehow these helped people know where they were and where they were going both in a cartographic kind of sense but in an identity sense and in a relationship sense and in, in you know multiple multiple ways so which is very interesting because he came up with this word which is instantly accessible to black fellas and white fellas so it was taken up with great alacrity by Aboriginal people as a way of um explaining what then was being called the dreamings or the dream time. Now the dream time we don't use anymore because that's kind of got I like there's a that's a very western sense of time that it's very fixed in one place, whereas time in the indigenous world is not at all fixed. it's it's like there's an expression we use like, um, when you look behind you, you see the future in your footprints. You know, so your identity is always in front of you, but it comes from behind. So it's a very, uh some people call it a circular sense of time or you can call it a spiral sense of time. Anyway, somehow or rather with the term song lines, he actually um, clinched it. He actually made, came up with a word, that people could actually get a handle on. As I said, blackfellas and white fellas. Because the blackfellas, the Aboriginal people from the desert, um, they have their own more language words, like Altira or or um, Far or depending on which part of the country you're in. So that's kind of their own talk amongst themselves in language. But to talk out externally outside their own language group, this became an extremely useful and um, convenient term. Like all cross-cultural terms, though, it is not precise and it will always be subject to imprecision and ambiguity and never be able to be pinned down precisely. But in the story, but people will get the sense. The best you can do is get the sense of what songlines are, get a sense of it, right? Now in if you ask and have
3: That was just an excerpt of a discussion between um, Lynne Kelly and Margot Neal about their book, Design Songlines. Lynne Kelly is a science writer whose field of research is the memory methods used by those who depended on their memories for knowledge. And Margot Neal is the head of the Centre for Indigenous Knowledges, Senior Indigenous Curator and Principal Advisor to the Director of the National Museum of Australia. Songlines, The Power and Promise is the first of six books in Thames and Hudson, Australia's First Knowledge series, all edited by Margot Neal. Before our um, next interview with uh, Dimity Hawkins, we are going to play a track for you. This is by non-based artist June Jones. Um, it's from her latest album, Pop Music for Normal Women, which was released a few days ago. And this is her song, Extrovert, featuring um 3cr tuesday breakfast alice sky oh favorite i used to think i was
6: an extrovert but i was just afraid of being alone coming off of my
7: alexa pro i can't text to talk on the phone
3: The song Extrovert by June Jones featuring Alice Skye.
0: Yesterday, the 26th of September marked the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. To commemorate the day, Reverse the Trend, an organisation confronting issues of climate change and nuclear weapons, are hosting an online webinar uh, later today in about an hour's time. Dimity Hawkins, co-founder of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, otherwise known as ICANN, and one of the speakers for the webinar, joins us now to discuss the International Day that occurred yesterday and the webinar coming up. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Dimity.
8: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, so the 26th of September commemorates uh, this International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. It'd be great if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about the history of this day and what it aims to bring attention to.
8: Sure. Um, the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons was established in about 2013 by the United Nations in recognition of the growing calls for nuclear abolition. So. The UN sets these days as a way to encourage dialogue, education and outreach across the world around a particular issue. So we've seen in recent weeks, for example, the International Day of Peace, which was just last week. It may have been drowned out by the war in Ukraine and threats to use nuclear weapons or the ceremonies for the last monarch. But the International Day Against Nuclear Tests was also at the end of August. So these are the days that the UN sets, and they're more than just symbolism. It's a way of building awareness and shifting norms around these problems. And that is exactly what we need at the moment. We need more people talking of the why and the how of nuclear disarmament right now.
0: Definitely, particularly coming off the back of Putin's uh, speech, uh, I guess, announcement, last week in Ukraine but you are right it happens um in all facets of the world not just uh the ones that are given the most media attention um, yeah. I did want to, uh you know, obviously you're the co-founder of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, who have been campaigning for some time to get Australia to sign the UN's Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Would you be able to explain what this treaty intends to do and why it is so important for Australia to sign? Yeah,
8: sure. It's one of my favourite topics. Um <laughs> I can bang on about the bomb as long good, as you Good. Can. Um, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or Nuclear Ban, as we like to call it, has been a remarkable collaboration of civil society and governments over the past decade and a half or so. But it builds off, you know, generations of work that people have done trying to get a ban, trying to ban the bomb. Um, the Nuclear Ban does just that. It bans all nuclear weapons comprehensively. So it stops countries from transferring and assisting and encouraging or inducing others. it stops them from stationing or installing or deploying nuclear weapons or nuclear devices on other people's territories. It also importantly right now makes it illegal not just makes it illegal not just the use of the nuclear weapons but the threat of their use, either directly or indirectly. So basically, as we like to say, the only thing you can do with nuclear weapons under this treaty is to get rid of them. And that's quite different to a number of other treaties that are around nuclear issues in the world. It was negotiated in the UN in 2017 with a lot of help from civil society, and it became international law just last January. And it now has 91 signatories and 68 state parties. But as you say, sadly, as yet... Australia is not one of them. So we need to push hard for the new federal government to sign and ratify and action this work alongside most of the nations in the region and those of other states that have already joined. Australia has a commitment to do this, this new government does, but we're yet to see that happen and we really need to see that happen as quickly as possible.
0: Definitely. And just reading a little bit about it on the ICANN website, um, and so the social media pages, you know, is it something that the Labor government actually said that it would
8: do? Yeah, yeah, they did. So um, in the ALP national platform, you'll find this commitment to signing and ratifying the treaty. And there's some conditions around that. There's some some qualifiers that they want to confirm. But, you know, we've answered all of those questions and and they can answer all of those questions that they had. But this was brought into the ALP national uh, policy platform in 2018. It was reconfirmed just last year, and certainly Prime Minister Albanese has been a strong supporter of the treaty.
0: Yes, yeah. So in terms of keeping to um, this uh, support for the treaty, it would be... I mean, it is important for them to sign. I wanted to, mm-hmm. um, move on to the webinar that you are, uh, speaking at just in under an hour, actually. And it's being hosted by Reverse the Trend, uh, Pacific. If you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, without giving too much away, of course, um, what exactly is, uh, Reverse the Trend? Uh, what do they aim to do as an organization? And what is the webinar going to be about?
8: Yeah, sure. Well, Reverse the Trend Pacific is a relatively new grouping coming out of the Pacific, but it's led by by a wonderful group of diverse young Pacifica people. It's based in Suva, Fiji, and it supports Pacific youth in the fight against nuclear weapons and climate change. And I guess the important thing here is that the Pacific really knows both the harms of nuclear weapons and climate change, right? They're the twin existential threats. And... For the Pacific, there's been about 315 nuclear weapons tests in this region, including here in Australia, over a 50-year period last century. So the legacies of harm are keenly felt in the region. RTCT Pacific are uh, reverse the trend Pacific, are amongst several wonderful Pacific-led organisations working to highlight this history and recognise harms and prevent further threats. And as for what's going to happen on the webinar today, well, I can only speak for myself. I'm really looking forward to hearing from the others who are going to be joining. I will be talking about my own understanding of growing up in the Pacific during the nuclear testing time and of the importance of the DPNW or the nuclear ban and how we need to see Australia join. But overnight, we also heard that the UN ambassador for Kiribati will be now joining us, too. And this is wonderful news, a really important show of support for the young organisers of RTT Pacific. Kiribati really knows well the harms of nuclear testing. After the British ended their atmospheric testing here in Australia, of course, they and then later the Americans went and used Kiribati Island for their nuclear tests. I know others will be speaking from other various experiences, including members of the Marshall Islands communities, which saw over 67 nuclear tests from the U.S. from 1946 to 58. Some of the largest ever tests done by the U.S. were imposed on the people of the Marshall Islands. And there will be colleagues from the U.K. who have done previous work with who know the nuclear story of Kiribati, others who will speak to the story of nuclear veterans in Fiji, and so much more. So loads of stories from the Pacific. Those are just a few
0: yeah that sounds great and wow what just mind boggling numbers um and nuclear testing done in that area that um i mean is directly kind of at the um hands of these quite powerful western countries including um Australia and obviously you said the US and um, uh, the British. Um, So this webinar is actually happening in approximately 50 minutes. Um, Mm. Where can people register uh, for the webinar if they'd like to attend?
8: Sure. Well, jump online and find RTT Pacific on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter and find a link on my latest post. I think it's still there. I don't think I've been doing any other Twitter this morning. Um, it starts at 8.30 Australian Eastern time, and which is 10.30 in the morning in Fiji and some terrible time in the UK and Europe <laughs> and USA, I don't know, whatever that is. Um, but it's over Zoom, so it's quick and simple to sign in and join this morning for most people.
0: Awesome. And I'd highly recommend, uh, you know, if, you, if anyone out there wants to keep up to date with um other events and other initiatives to do with abolishing nuclear weapons uh, than to follow ICANN Australia uh, on uh, social media, but we can link to that in our website. Uh, well, thank you so much Dimity for joining us this morning and talking about uh, the international day that occurred yesterday and also the webinar coming up. Um, and it sounds absolutely amazing with heaps of incredibly important leaders um, at the forefront of this activism, uh, speaking and good luck with it.
8: Thank you so much, Genevieve. It's yeah. going to be
0: great. Thank you. That was Dimity Hawkins, co-founder of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, otherwise known as ICANN. The Reverse the Trend webinar is happening in the next, uh, 45 minutes and you can register by going to at RTT Pacific on Instagram and registering at the Zoom link in the bio. It is uh, not one to miss, as Dimity was saying, with incredible speakers from Australia and the Pacific speaking to the urgency of addressing the nuclear weapons crisis.
3: Awesome. Thanks for bringing us that discussion, Jen. We are now going to head to another track. This is by Nairi, and it's the song Him, which comes from her 2021 album Three. Oh, man. the song Hymn by Nairi. Our next guest is Anna Langford, who is the campaign coordinator at Friends of the Earth's Act on Climate Collective. Uh, Anna's on the show this morning to speak to us about the Climate Impacts at Work report, which presents... Uh, Worker-Centric Analysis of Climate Change Impacts. It also describes how climate change is already affecting workers predominantly from Victoria and provides recommendations for next steps. It's based on a survey of paid workers' experiences of climate-related disruptions and stresses. This project was run by Friends of the Earth and RMIT University's Climate Resilience Living Lab. And it was undertaken with the assistance of six unions, um, including the Australian Services Union, Community and Public Sector Union, Health and Community Services Union, Hospital Voice, Rail, Tram and Bus Union, and Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Anna.
9: Thanks so much for having me on.
3: So last week we spoke with <clears throat> Ursula Al- Alkia from Healthy Futures about the impact of The climate crisis on healthcare workers. And so now um, we, I guess, are are, um, broadening our scope and looking at workers from several different industries and how they're being impacted by by the climate change. Um, Can you tell us more about this survey that was conducted and the type of questions that you asked workers?
9: Yeah, definitely. So I think a really key part of it in our approach in the first place as to um, what industries and workers we wanted to survey was that we really wanted to um, broaden the scope of workers who are seen to be affected by climate change right now. Um, I guess from the traditional, like, the focus, I think, in the past has centred a lot more on outdoor workers, like construction workers who are copying you know, the most obvious impact of climate change now, which is um, much more intense heat. And that is obviously a really uh, crucial one to have focused on because, um, yeah, they are some of the the workers that have been on the most obvious front lines of climate change. Uh, but we really wanted to cast the net a lot wider and see, you know, how many other industries and workers can we bring into this conversation so that they're able to see, articulate climate change as a problem that is already affecting them personally at work. So as you can, as listeners will um, see from the unions you just named, we really cast a net to include everyone from office workers, transport workers, people in kitchens, health workers, Um, who are all experiencing climate change in different kinds of ways on the ground. So the questions were aiming to draw out as many different aspects of that as we could and that includes everything from all the different kinds of physical impacts, whether that's from a heatwave or an intense storm, all the way through till the mental health effects on workers um, that can be exacerbated by the physical effects
3: yeah, and it was interesting that you just noted that, you know, you're, you were looking to include, um, you know, a, a wide range of, of, workers and, and their experiences, um, dealing with the impacts of climate change and looking at the report, you know, reading, um, testimonies from, um, people working in kitchens. Like you said, they also suffer from, uh, increased heats, um, not just the people who are working outside or, or people who are having to work during, you know, bushfire season and not receiving adequate PPE to, um, to work through those, um, conditions. Uh, I think it, it yeah, for a lot of people, I think we don't necessarily think about, um, how intense and how widespread, uh, this issue is for workers.
4: Mm, yeah,
9: exactly. I think for quite a lot of people, climate change is still framed as an externalised problem, like a problem that's happening to someone else somewhere else or up in, you know, the uh, the Arctic or like to just, yeah, people in like more extreme situations than you right now. And of course, the, the impacts are unevenly distributed across the world. Um, which, um, collides with differences in socioeconomic, um, situations. Um, and yeah, I think like through wanting to include all these different workers in the survey, we really just wanted to show, um, how holistic it is already for people on the ground right here in Victoria, um, and therefore how holistic, um, and worker centred the response to climate impacts that are gonna mm-hmm. continue to intensify needs to be. Um, because you know, when when we when we're looking at the results we're just we just kept seeing all the ways that each you know, what happened in one industry, what affected one group of workers would then bounce off and affect another group. For example, with transport Uh, One thing we asked all workers about in the survey was if their transport to and from work had been disrupted because of climate impacts. And about a third of people across the whole spectrum of industries reported that they had experienced um, problems with transport to and from work, whether that's due to extreme heat or um, a storm or flooding or that kind of thing. So obviously that, you know, affects the transport workers managing the public transport system who have to deal with that extra stress. But then it also flows on to workers in all those other industries, um, like, for example, health workers who might not be able to get to the clients that they're doing in-home visits for.
3: Mm. Yeah, and and, and to um, it, it extends beyond just, you know, what... Workers have to deal with at work, but it also affects, um, their lives outside of work in terms of, you know, their housing, um, conditions. Like if a lot of these mm. part-time casual workers are, um, are living in rental housing and, and with the climate crisis, they're not provided with adequate, um, cooling or heating. Um, and so that affects them, you know, not just at work, but in their living conditions as well or, you know, just, Reading the report and, and seeing that a lot of people are now working from home, uh, since COVID, um, but again, if, if they're not adequately supplied with, um, with heating or cooling, um, the more that we experience extreme weather, you know, the harder it is for them to, to carry out their work. So it, yeah, it, it's, it's, not just a, I mean, it's more than just a work issue. Like you said, it's it mm. needs to be looked at in a holistic sense and see that it affects, you know, people's um, living conditions as well.
9: Yeah, exactly. And that is really what we mean when we say that it's a worker-centric study, and that the response to intensifying climate impacts should be worker-centric. It doesn't actually mean just confined to your workplace, but it means taking a look at what, your, what stresses you're being put under as a worker in your job. How does that flow on to your, your home life and your, your family and community through that? And even it can also be in the reverse, like if your work situation is relatively comfortable, if your home situation, for example, a really uncomfortable rental property uh, is constantly affecting things like your sleep cycle and just how, yeah, how well you're able to function at home during extreme weather. Then that flows on to affect how well you're able to function in the workplace. Mm. Um, one thing about extreme heat that we really saw pop up in as real life examples in the survey was that when there's a heat is something that accumulates in your body over days so like you know when there's a heat wave that lasts a couple of days you're going to be feeling the effects of the same temperature a lot more intensely on say the fifth day than the first day um, even if the actual temperature is not necessarily higher because if you if you go home and you're not able to adequately cool down at night then you yeah, you wake up and start the next day in a much more depleted state that won't actually get better until you're able to fully cool down for an extended period of time.
3: Wow. So, yeah, it's, it it seems as though the, the physical impacts on your body are, are quite extreme and, and I imagine what that does to your mental health as well mm. um, wouldn't, yeah, isn't great at all. Um, I, I wanted to touch briefly on the workers' perceptions of of climate change, um, what kind of responses did you get from workers in terms of how they viewed um, the climate crisis and what's being done about it or what's not being done about it?
9: Yeah, um, well, I think, like, obviously, like, the the study being called Climate Impacts at Work will have in some way skewed the results to um, a lot of people taking the survey who are already interested or aware of climate change in some way or other. Um, but also, like, I mean, we wanted to... We were aware that it being called climate impacts at work might even um, exclude, in a way, some people that have already suffered some of the most intense impacts of climate change, like, for example, um, you know, people who are still traumatised from... Um, bushfires and just might not be able to share their experiences yet in that way. Um, but across the board, we just did see a really strong awareness of the ways that climate change is already playing out in people's lives and their communities. Um, and I think that came through really strongly in the, the mental health findings. So across the whole spectrum of workers that took the survey, 48% of the whole sample reported that they felt their mental health um, had already been affected by climate impacts. Um, and that wasn't just the kind of, you know, you know about climate change as a concept, therefore you're you're stressed and anxious about it. It was really like being linked to the on-the-ground experiences people were having, whether that was the smoke in the 2019-20 fires um, or the more
3: recent floods? Yeah, um, it's, it's. I mean, I think for, the, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but it seems like the majority of people, and especially those taking that um, survey, know already what, um, how the climate is negatively impacting, um, everyone, especially workers, um, in a variety of situations. Um, is there anything that, uh, I guess is, are there any support services or if there are any workers who are, um, who are wanting to speak to someone about, about how the climate is impacting them at work, is there anyone that they can talk to? Um,
9: yeah, I, so I think there's like, um, a worker issue and a class issue, Um, and I think there's lots of really good work going on there that union members um, and workers can track and be involved with. I think an awesome example for anyone who is a member of um, the United Workers' Union, which represents, I think, like 40 or 50 different industries, is that, they have um, a member climate action group that they've been running for the last year and a half or so, and it's a place for um, members to come along to regular meetings and share their experiences of how they're um, being affected by climate impacts and also, like, talk about what kind of responses they want to see from employers and the union and um, from governments. And they've like, they've been doing that kind of, you know, just story sharing and conceptual work, but they're also doing awesome on, on the ground outreach work to their members whenever there's a climate disaster. Um, so for example, when the bushfires and floods have happened, they've been doing like mass reach out to members in affected areas to check in on them and offer them support through, um, relief payments if, people have lost income or um, or their homes. So I think, like, that's a really innovative thing that's come up that I'd love to see more unions um, create a similar version of. And that member climate action group is actually available for any member of any union to join, even if it's not United Workers' Union at the moment, because they're really keen to, um, yeah, bring more people in on it.
3: Awesome. Well, that sounds really great. And I guess, um, you know, with... You know, I read in the report that a lot of workers are feeling frustrated and, and fearful and concerned about um, inaction with regards to climate change. So at least this is something that workers can get involved with, um, and and you know have that solidarity with other workers at, mm. at a at a critical time like this. Um, Unfortunately, Anna, we're all out of time this morning, but um, there's so much more that we could talk about with regards to this issue. Um, We will provide a link to the report for anyone out there who is interested in reading it. But for now, thank you so much, Anna, for joining us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast this morning.
9: Thanks so much for having me on. Great to chat with you.
3: Thanks. That was um, Anna Langford um, from the Act on Climate Collective, um, speaking to us about the Climate Impacts at Work report that was um, published by um, Friends of the Earth and RMIT University. We'll be back with Liz Walsh right after this message. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth
1: Greetings, cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet.
3: Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's just after 8 a.m. and we are now joined by Liz Walsh from Victorian Socialists, who is on the show this morning to speak to us about the need for a substantial response to any sexist pro-life movement or figures in Australian politics. Um, this is uh, we're talking about this because on Saturday, October the 8th, an annual counter-protest against the Bigot of March for Babies. Valley will be held. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, on Tuesday, Breakfast Liz. Yeah, great to be back. Um so we'll start uh by um uh yeah, looking at um I guess Roe v Wade which has impacted um a lot of the discussion about reproductive rights here in Australia. Um can you tell us more about what this demonstration is and um uh What were, sorry, this is in response to the um, mass demonstration that was um, held earlier this year about um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, Tell us more about this demonstration and what people were feeling when um, Roe v. Wade was overturned.
6: Yeah, right. So in uh, July, Roe v. Wade the ruling which sort of gave women in the United States some constitutional protection, uh, for abortion rights was overturned by six unelected, bigoted, racist, sexist judges, um, and it clearly sent shockwaves all across the world, uh, because, you know, we think that the rights that we've won through struggles, you know, in the 60s and 70s, with the women's liberation movement, that that is, um, that they're, they're their rights that are, are final, that they're not going to be taken away, that we can take them for granted. And it was a real sort of shock for a lot of uh, women and pregnant people across the globe and anyone who supports, um, you know, these uh, central rights for people to control their bodies, that, um, you know, that actually our rights could be wound back and um, where would be next, you know, and what other rights are they going to take away? So I think the huge response we had in Melbourne of, like, 15,000 people on the streets which is a really significant demonstration um, for Melbourne to have, especially given, you know, post the lockdown, has been hard to mobilise a lot of people on the streets. But, you know, it really struck a, a, a nerve because we hold these rights, so yeah, and, you know, cause the horror of what was happening to women and pregnant people in the United States.
3: Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt, um, of course, it was such a, it felt really personal for a lot of people, um, even though uh, it was. You know it was something a decision that was made in in the United States, but like you said it um, had an impact um, on you know all all people everywhere um, and you know we're starting to see that in the u s as well that it has sort of um, i guess had a domino effect on on um, limiting the rights of 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 other groups of people as well in, including queer people so um, it felt like a really um, I guess pivotal moment for a lot of people. Um, can you tell us about this March for the Babies rally um, and and the counter rally that is going to be happening on the same day? Um, why is it important for us to keep this issue in the forefront of people's minds?
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in Victoria we've um, decriminalised abortion, which is fantastic, um, and something, you know, we want to protect. We want to make sure that the right-wing bigoted pro-life, what they call pro-life forces, um, that want to take away women pregnant people's choice, um, that, that, that these forces aren't, are not emboldened by the victory that they've had in the United States. Clearly, they follow um, developments in the US and are given encouragement. You know, Bernie Finn himself ends up being expelled from the Liberal Party, um, he's the Western Metro Liberal Party, former Liberal Party um representative. He was expelled from the Liberal Party for celebrating the overturning of Roe v. Wade in particular, that um, you know, calling for abortion to be criminalized in Australia even in cases of rape. So, you know, that was sort of a step too far even for the um, you know, very right wing Trumpian Liberal Party. Um and so so you can so we can see that, yeah, far right and right wing forces get encouragement when these victories happen and so we need to make sure we're on the front foot in Melbourne and all across Australia to say that, you know, you will not um, develop into a, um, a significant movement. We'll keep you on the margins. We'll keep you the, on the fringes of society because the overwhelming majority of people in Australia support um, abortion rights. They're not with um, Bernie Finney's much for the Babies uh, but we, we can't just be complacent and mm-hmm. so every year we organise... Um, Counter rally to their march for the babies, their call to re abortion in, in Victoria, and try and get hundreds of people out to sort of show that you know they will be challenged wherever they go, and also that Melbourne is a you know pro abortion town. We support women and pregnant people's rights.
3: Yeah, I really like what you said about the fact that um, you know as a as a community as a movement we can't be complacent and um, we really need to be on the front foot and quash any. Um, Anti-abortion sentiment that mm-hmm. could be brewing in in Melbourne, and I think as well show everyone that we're not taking this for granted, and we're going to continue to fight for the rights of of um, of people who can who can give birth and and women in this country, um, and really I guess show um, that minor- minority of people, show them that yeah we're not going to back down um, any time <laughs> at any time. Yeah. Um,
6: there's also the importance of, of taking a in Australia because we don't have, um, you know, the demands of the Women's Liberation Movement was for free um, universal access to abortion, which we haven't won still. Mm. Um, there's still really limited um, access for women. You know, most abortions are performed in um, private clinics, so you need to have hundreds of dollars, you know, on average, um, you know, $400 for an abortion, um, more if you don't have a Medicare card. because um, some of that is uh, subsidised by Medicare. So if you're an international student it can be thousands of dollars. Um and so that's a real financial and material barrier to women exercising their um their rights. So
3: yeah, and we've yeah, we've spoken life. to um on this show we've spoken to Dr. Susie Allenson and, and Lizzie O'Shea um about the fact that you know, it's so different for 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 people depending on whether they live in the city or regional areas, or mm-hmm. from state to state, the, the the laws are different. So it really does make it quite difficult for people to access um, those services if they if they want and need them.
1: Mhm.
6: Exactly. Yeah. So they, there's a lot of discussion about the postcode lottery, but yeah, if you live in, um, especially a regional, rural area, there's next to no um services and you'll have to travel into the city because, you know, overnight um, costs, you know, for accommodation and all the travel costs. So if you're from a um, you know poor working class background, you know, again, this creates real barriers to exercising your rights. Mm-hmm. And we also have the whole issue of public hospitals um, refusing to also perform abortion care. So, you know, recently there was a bit of discussion of, um, with the um, Fiona Patterns bill to try and remove the religious just exemptions um, from, uh, with extremely exemptions from from public hospitals. So the Mercy, for instance, in in Werribee, which is the only hospital in that massive captain area, in, you know, fast-growing suburbs in Wyndham, um, that uh, you know this public hospital because it's from her Catholic board, refuses to perform abortion care. So you know, people in the area have you know services. So that's also something that needs to be overturned, that public hospitals who receive public money shouldn't be allowed mm. to refuse this basic, um, you know, health care.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, so if there are any listeners out there who would like to attend the counter rally um, on Saturday, can you tell us um, the details about the time and location?
6: Great, yeah. So we're meeting on Saturday, 8th of October, at 12.30 um, at Parliament House, so... You know, somewhere around Spring and Burke Street. It will depend on whether the police also block off some of the roads. They often do that. But around the Spring Burke Street intersection, uh, the march of the Babies Bernie Finn crew uh, meet in Treasury Gardens and they march um, through the city up to Parliament House. So um, you know we'll be uh, having a good yell on the day, probably marching around um, and you know making their life difficult. So we'd really like um, as many people as possible to raise their voices um, in support of abortion rights, but not just defend the legal right, but also to demand... Yeah, free abortion and expanded services. So it'd be great to have the yeah, hundreds of people there with us.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, and like you said earlier, Liz, like you know, we had such an amazing turnout at the beginning of the year, but it is important that we continue to talk about this and um, and uh, stay on top of everything that's happening regarding reproductive rights here in Australia and in Melbourne. So, yeah, we encourage listeners to get down if they are able to. Um, thank you so much, Liz, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast this morning to chat about this counter rally. We'll pop the details in our show notes for our listeners um, if they'd like to find out more.
6: Awesome. Thanks
3: so much for having me. No worries. So that was Liz Walsh from Vic Socialists on the show again to talk to us about um, the counter-rally that's being held um, to oppose the bigoted march for the babies rally. Um, And both events will be occurring on October the 8th. And again, if you'd like to attend, please check our show notes later this morning. Um, We'll have all the details there. We'll be back with our final interview for this morning right after these messages.
1: Donations to TransFamily are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. TransFamily is a 3CR supporter.
3: Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are now joined by Sahar Golizadeh, who is joining us this morning to speak to us about the solidarity vigil for the murder of Masa Amini that is happening um, this week. Um, and uh, Sahar is also on the show to tell us more about what's happening currently in Iran. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh,
4: thank you very much for inviting me. I uh,
3: really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. So we spoke about this um, at the beginning of the show, and I imagine that a lot of our listeners would um, know already what's happening. But could you just give us a bit of background um, regarding the death of Masa Amini um, uh, 10 days ago? Yeah,
4: thank you. Martha Amini was 22. She traveled from one of the cities in Kurdistan to Tehran, the capital, with her brother. And she was wearing a normal scarf when they were stopped by the morality police. And the morality police, it's been there for many years, more than 40 years and um, before it was named something else now, it is morality police, or called gash their shot. So they stopped by them in that uh, your staff is not good enough, it's on, not on our way, based on our standards, uh, which every, every one of those morality police have their own standards. Um, so And then they took her to the car, they take them with the van, with the police van, um, to the education center. And uh, after they took her to the education center, um, it took uh, a few hours. Uh, after that, um, they called the family and, and then they said that she's dead. She had a heart, a heart attack. So what happens is that in the education centres, they put all these young women in that education centre and then they ask them to sign papers and that uh, in, you, you've been educated, you're not going to do this again. And if any of those girl, young girls, they said that, um, or they they speak up, and they say that there is nothing wrong with my um, cover i 'm happy with with what i am what i 'm wearing, or um, they raise their voice um, for themselves, stand for themselves, and then they will be, um, beat them uh they will find them guilty, send them to the court and all of this. Mm. So what happened in, in with they mm. we are not sure. We don't know what happened to her, what did they do, how they beat her, because uh, there are plenty of people, plenty of stories outside um, that um, they've been taken, these young these girls, they've been taken, even myself or my daughter, we've been taken uh, to these morality uh, centres and they, um, they humiliate you, they humiliate you the way and, uh, and the way that you, they speak to you to hate yourself. Um, to be ashamed of yourself that for, for just being a woman mm-hmm. uh, so that's what they did they did to mass as well
3: and and you were saying that you know in these centers uh women and young girls are punished for for speaking up and for defending themselves uh, and we've seen recently with these protests in um in iran that you know, a lot of these protest movements are being led by by women and by queer people, and and a lot of these women are standing up for themselves and really um, raising their voices. What is the importance, in your in your opinion, what's the importance of these protests being led and organised by women? Uh, I think
4: that the leader of the the future are, are women, and not only women, they are young women. I am. Here, sitting outside Iran from all of those fights, when I see the videos coming out, they're all young, brave women. The people, the young generation that we were thinking that all they do, they're dancing on TikTok. But now they, you see that this protest started from there. They're like, no, this is my right. I see outside. I see how people are treating, um, Buhl. I see everyone, every other woman in other countries, they have freedom. Why shouldn't I have? Even including the Islamic countries, other countries within the re- region, they have freedom. They, they can speak up. They have uh, the freedom of choice what to wear, what not to wear. Why they shouldn't? So I think that, um, women, they um, they they've been hostages. They've been um, under too much pressure. They they didn't have any tools in the last forty four years of um, Islamic um, regime. They they ha- you, They are not allowed to talk. They are, even in within the Islamic regime, you are not. They tell you that you are not allowed to to laugh. Because if you laugh or if you don't cover your hair the way that I want to, then uh, I might um, lose my control and then I want to, to do whatever I want to because, because you're attractive. Mm. Because women are delicate, women are beautiful, and, and those men that, who rule the, the country, they cannot control themselves. That's why they think that, okay, so I have to suppress women. And now these women are standing for
3: themselves. Yeah, and, and there's the photos and, and footage coming out of Iran, quite incredible thing. So many, like you said, so many young women leading these protests and, and, um, standing up for the, their rights and the rights of others. Um, there have also been many events, um, occurring outside of Iran, um, all over the world, including here in, in Melbourne in solidarity with the people of Iran. Um, can you talk about, a bit about the importance of, of solidarity from, from other communities to support the people of Iran at this crucial time? Yes. Yeah.
4: When uh, George Floyd um, was beaten by American police, Iranians signed up for them. They, they were all marching on the streets. When uh, any, anything else happened around the world, with the Ukraine war, war, with the Afghanistan war, Iranians and Iranian women stood up and they were all marching on the streets for uh, everyone else outside. And now the importance of other communities, especially these communities that, uh, we're all immigrants from Iran here yeah, in Australia, America, or Canada. This is very important to have other communities, oh, um, beside us, um, because we are supporting Iranian women who are fighting for their own liberties. And, they, it might not very, uh, clear or people, you can't even imagine being fighting for your fundamental right, for what to wear, how to speak, how to have freedom, just freedom of wearing what you want to wear, uh, just a bit, bit of scarf. And then if, if you're not covering your hair properly, then you've been bitten by this and to this. Um, so just showing solidarity for all of those who have battled against the establishment. We can be their voice. Mm. That is, I think, that that's what we can do because the government uh, cut down the internet. There is no internet inside the country, despite that people are sending their videos, their footages outside. However, so if we have... Um, because we have the freedom, we have the internet, we have um, media we we can broadcast, we can publish and sh- show to the world our solidarity, and that shows that they are not uh, alone
3: yeah, definitely um, uh, a final question for you, Sahar, before we finish today, there is a solidarity vigil being held on Thursday. Can you please tell us the details so that you know listeners out there can come along? Thank
4: you very much. Yes, uh, on Thursday, 29th of September at 6 o'clock, um, we are getting together in solidarity, um, of, uh, no, sorry, uh, in solidarity of supporting all these women who are fighting for their, li- their liberties uh, in um, Federation Square. And, and then we start marching and chanting uh, to Parliament House. It's going to take about um, an hour and a half and uh, people all from uh, all communities in Melbourne they all um, already uh, showed their support and they said that they will be there which is uh, which
3: is heartwarming for us amazing so that's happening um this thursday the 29th of september at 6pm meeting at federation square and uh, and everyone will be marching to parliament house that's correct great um, Saha thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning um, I just wanted to echo your words that you know here um, a lot of us have the freedom to to express the way uh, express ourselves the way that we want and dress how we want and so like you said Saha it's our responsibility to show solidarity with the people of Iran and, and amplify their voices and share their messages with the rest of the world um, thank you so much uh, Saha and we'll see you on Thursday. Thank you very much. Thanks, a lot. That was Sahar Golizadeh speaking to us this morning about um, the murder of Masaham Amini, uh, the protests that have been happening in Iran for 10 days now, and the solidarity vigil that will be taking place on Thursday at 6pm. We'll be back with a wrap-up of the show right after this message.
7: Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends At Living Coco for their support of the programme Living Coco puts community first By respecting food sovereignty Based in Braybrook They create bean-to-bar chocolates Cacao tea Intentional drinking cacao And cacao mass in bulk a zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
1: To see our Breakfast, would like to
3: thank the new international. Welcome back to. <laughs> So, our Tuesday breakfast. Um, we're getting towards the end of our show now. Um, yeah, what a, what a huge show. Huge show, back to yeah. Back Pretty much all live guests this morning. Yeah. So, just to recap our show today, we started by listening to an excerpt from a talk given by Lynn Kelly and Margo Neal. Um, they were discussing indigenous, um, knowledges and, um, the importance of um, recording information through song story art dance and ceremony uh then we spoke to co-founder of the
0: international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons Dim- dimity hawkins who is uh speaking at a webinar happening actually right now uh uh hosted by um reverse the trend pacific
3: After that, we spoke with Anna Langford from Friends of the Earth Act on Climate Collective. Anna was on the show to tell us about this new report that's been released by Friends of the Earth, um, RMIT University and six uh, unions here in Victoria looking at the impacts of the climate crisis on workers, on their physical, mental health and the way in which they are able to carry out their work. After that, we spoke with Liz Walsh from Vic Socialists about the upcoming counter-rally that's being held on October 8th. This is to protest against the... Um, so-called pro-life March for the Babies Rally that's being held in the city, um, details of which will be on our website if you'd like to attend. And then just now we spoke with Sahar Godisadeh, who was on the show to talk about the Solidarity Vigil for Masa Amini, which is being held this Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Stick around for um, Accent of Women coming up right next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International
1: Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced
0: in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.